Welcome to EduMeasure, a podcast for teachers, students, parents, and others concerned with transforming teaching and learning, a resource for exploring creative, unconventional responses to current issues in education. I'm your host, Baron Esterbrook, a professor at a small liberal arts college in Illinois. And in today's podcast episode, I'd like to imagine a way that we can make a substantive change to a seemingly intractable educational problem. And I'd like to do it by sharing a mistake I once made, as well as my subsequent correction, which taught me a valuable lesson in how to approach my students' education. Let's begin with one of the buzzwords in contemporary education, describing a widespread problem, student engagement. The question of how our institutions can enhance or increase student buy-in, promoting active rather than passive participation in the classroom. This problem seems to be everywhere in education these days. All too many of our students are distracted, unmotivated, inattentive, and bored with what we have to offer them. Typically, the strategies around student engagement embrace a collection of pedagogical, institutional strategies designed to fix this problem. Now, the very fact that we are trying to promote student engagement is evidence of two important difficulties. The first, we as teachers are no longer able just to command our students' attention. In contrast to previous decades, we are unable to force our students to commit themselves to what they are doing in the classroom. If we nevertheless attempt to force them, they just don't pay attention. We lack the authority and respect that at one time compelled students, at least to some degree, to take what we do in the classroom seriously. The second difficulty, to quote the educator Sir Ken Robinson, is that our students are living in perhaps the most complex and stimulating environment in the history of the earth replete with a wide array of economic, political, and social influences that regularly distract them from their studies. These influences often directly challenge the value and importance of what we are teaching in the classroom. Social media, television, popular culture, consumerism, technology, and the polarized society of our time are powerful, often overwhelming influences that make our students' classroom experiences of reading, writing, and arithmetic seem out of touch and irrelevant. These new technologies constitute competing interests for our students' attention. And when we try to compete with these distractions, generally we lose. New programs and pedagogies just don't compare with the attractions of social media. Now, to solve the problem of student engagement, we need more than just a top-down process or procedure. Strange as it may sound, we need the guidance of our students. We need to start here because it is their need we should address, not our societal need. Our children are built to tell us what they need when we as adults fail them. They know in their deepest awareness when something is missing, when we as adults have failed to provide them with what they truly need. They all too often have received a bewildering array of substitutes, compensations, and simulations from our society rather than those qualities of mind and spirit that children have a right to expect from adults. Fortunately for us, in its most basic form, our children can still make us aware when we are failing to meet their needs. We all realize the significance of a baby's cry. When its needs are not met, that cry is designed biologically 
to draw the attention of adults that are caring for the baby. We seem, however, to be less attentive to the signals from our young people that something is wrong, perhaps because their needs are more complex, or perhaps because their needs mirror our own. Perhaps they are not willing to settle for what adults around them view as normal. Regardless, our children do not necessarily realize consciously that we have failed to protect them from an exploitative society, but they feel it deeply. And if we listen carefully, patiently to them, they'll tell us exactly what they need, exactly what is lacking in their lives, if we listen. Now, rather than discuss the importance of listening and teaching and learning further in the abstract, I'd like to share an anecdote from my own experience that describes one way I learned this lesson in my own classroom. It began with a very difficult student. At some point, every teacher runs into the problem child, students who resist every effort to help them succeed, for whom every pedagogy, every teaching method or approach seems inadequate. These students are our brick wall, a problem that resists every effort and negates every solution. Our efforts on these students' behalf seem sometimes futile, and the temptation for us as teachers is simply to let them fail, because we've tried our best and nothing works. The most stubborn teachers, however, find it hard to accept any defeat, and they keep trying and trying and trying until the academic year of the semester closes. And long after the student has moved on, that student's failure becomes the teacher's failure. It persists and remains engraved in our memory, haunting us with might-have-beens. What else could we have done? Was the failure ours, or the student's, or both? Like a detective reviewing an unsolved crime from early in his career, we review the evidence obsessively, wondering whether we were negligent or careless or clueless. What did we miss? Now, early in my teaching career, I ran into just such a student. She walked into the classroom with an attitude that stated clearly she did not want to be there. She was carefully attired in what was back then known as a goth style clothed in black, pierced ears, lips and tongue, with fitting makeup and hairstyle. This style was not a problem. Young people are always experimenting with new ways to explore who they are. But I knew the cynical attitude might well be a difficulty. I was teaching a beginning language class in German that met a college requirement, and it was clear to me that she saw me as a representative of the society against which she was protesting. I underestimated just how much of a challenge she would be. She was actually a fairly disciplined student, able to manage her time and to focus her attention on her studies to a much greater degree than many of her peers. But her problem was that for all her careful study for the class, she seemed utterly unable to retain any vocabulary, grammar, or the conversational patterns needed for understanding and practicing the language. She failed every quiz and was unable to remember the basic patterns of the language. Now, she was not the only student in the course who had problems, but she was the only one who had difficulties in spite of spending so much time studying. As the weeks passed, I worked closely with her and realized that her problem was not a lack of discipline. She seemed just unable to learn the language. But this was grist from my mill. I had over a decade of teaching experience behind me, and I had a long list of different language teaching methods and approaches that I'd acquired over the years and I was sure I could solve her problem. I went to work to diagnose the specifics of her obstacles, adapting my teaching methods accordingly. 
but to no avail. I tried alternative approaches, combining different methods and applying them in different contexts, but nothing worked. I began to apply older, superseded teaching methods in a desperate effort to find something to break the logjam, but the result was always the same. In spite of long hours working together outside of class, in spite of the handouts, teaching aids, conversational practice, drilling, intuitive learning approaches, and many other efforts, she handed in everything on time, completed every assignment, and failed every language assessment. And it was clear to me that she was getting desperate herself. She was a senior and needed my course in order to graduate. My first thought was that perhaps it was her lack of enthusiasm that was the problem, and indeed my efforts to inspire enthusiasm fell flat. But my instinct said that this was not the real problem. I knew that other less motivated students were still able to achieve at least at a rudimentary level, but her failure was truly epic. I had tried everything I knew, and I had communicated with other colleagues for suggestions, but it seemed that there was nothing else to do. The unfolding tragedy of her failure to graduate seemed inevitable. I'd done my best. At least, that's what I was telling myself. Now, about a month before the end of the semester, I met with her in my office, more out of a sense of despair than with the idea that there was anything else that I could do, but still somehow determined to turn the situation around. Now, after a very brief and short discussion of what we had already tried in the previous weeks, there was a long silence. What could I say? It was at that moment that I had a sudden realization. In spite of all the time that we had spent working together in the previous two months, I realized that I did not really know this student. She never volunteered anything about herself, and I was accustomed to the fortified, reserved stare that she fixed me with whenever we worked together. I wasn't expecting her to be especially forthcoming, and she in turn did not plan on revealing anything to me that did not stem from our formal classroom relationship. Our interaction up to this point had been characterized by what I was doing for her, to her, and with her. Always with her as the recipient, as the object of my efforts. I was going to solve her problem. I was going to figure out what her difficulty was and fix it. I had the knowledge, the familiarity with a wide variety of teaching methods and approaches, and she would respond to my pedagogy, even if she was not particularly interested in the subject I was teaching. My competence and success as a teacher lay in my ability to coax the acquisition of knowledge even among the poorly motivated. But now I was up against an exception to this assumption. And the enormity of my mistake suddenly began to become clear to me. My teaching framework was presumptuous. I had unconsciously assumed that teaching was something I exercised upon students. Even though I regularly employed interactive classroom approaches, my understanding of my students was based on my questions, my interests, and the needs of my classroom. The classroom's interactions were only superficially mutual. After all, the syllabus of this course had been designed long before I met any of these students, and it was expected from the first day that they would conform to that organization and schedule. I was the subject, and they were the objects. It occurred to me that perhaps I was missing something in my determination to solve her problem. And what I was missing was her own contribution. It was not something that I could force from her or compel her to provide, 
But I had to admit that I had never really recognized her in the way that she understood herself. I had not been consciously put off by the goth style she had adopted, but it had not inspired a determination in me to understand her as more than a student, an abstraction, a generic category of persons. And I truly needed her help. She had perhaps been complicit in believing that the problem was one that I had to solve, but now it was time to either resign myself to the inevitable or to refuse that inevitability by opening an unexpected door. And so we had a different kind of conversation from everything that had preceded it. I inquired about what she loved to do. I knew from my paperwork that she was a music major, and I discovered that she was indeed a gifted singer, and even more surprisingly, was devoted to classical opera. Her goth persona clearly did not exhaust her motivations and interests. She expressed tremendous enthusiasm and remarkable sophistication and competence in her study of music. There was nothing reserved or passive in her love of operatic arias. To my surprise, a student who could never seem to remember more than two or three vocabulary items in class had been able to learn long operatic arias in other languages and sing them from memory. The problem as I had defined it, the problem that had bedeviled me for months, was suddenly obsolete and irrelevant. A situation that now confronted me with possibilities that I had not even considered plausible before. I had to rethink and redefine the problem. But this time, I had a partner. Our solution came down to a combination of language learning and music. The strong verb conjugations that she could never seem to remember were suddenly easily recalled when we set them to music. Vocabulary, pronunciation, model sentences, even points of grammar yielded to song, to rhythm, and the language of tones. Our practice sessions were, frankly, unique. I had never done anything quite like this in my teaching before, but those sessions are still vivid in my memory. We sang our way through language learning. And those sessions worked. True, I had to isolate her from the rest of the class for quizzes and other work since she sang her way through the testing. And I know that there were raised eyebrows from some of my colleagues down the hall as they heard her sing her way through the final exam. But she passed the course, improving dramatically. We were never particularly close, but a mutual respect and admiration characterized our relationship by the end of that semester. Today, when I think about that anecdote, I'm grateful to my goth student for an important lesson that she taught me. My assumptions... Those ideas that had governed my efforts to solve the initial problem had kept me from a vital insight, from the key to her education. My training, my experience, my intelligence, and my knowledge of the discipline were valuable resources for teaching. But without an additional element, I now realize that those advantages could easily be rendered helpless. That element, that necessary key to understanding the real nature of the problem, was relationship. Not a one-sided relationship, but a mutual interaction and sharing of insight. Though she did not know it, my student already possessed the potential solution within herself. But it was not until I began a true dialogue with her, rather than operating on her, that I was able to identify the missing piece of the puzzle. To develop that relationship, I needed to learn how to listen. 
not in the passive or even condescending way that we so often do, because we still believe that we understand the situation far better than our students do, or because we believe their experiences to be trivial or irrelevant, but rather to employ an active listening, a genuine interest in the potential contributions that our students can make to their own education. I think that if we are honest, we can admit that listening to our students is not always easy. It takes time, it requires attention, curiosity, and most of all, tremendous patience. Patience is especially important when our students are not used to serious consideration of their experiences and ideas by their teachers. Old habits die hard on both sides. Listening is not a method or approach, not another technique that we can employ to achieve a pedagogical goal, because if listening is employed in this way, it tends to become just another method of manipulating students to achieve goals. At its core, listening requires humility, the frank acknowledgement that we as teachers do not know everything we need to know, that our classroom will only be a half-classroom with reluctant or openly hostile opponents if we do not establish a mutual relationship that takes into account the contributions of both students and teachers. How can we persuade our students that what we as teachers believe and have learned is valuable if we fail to recognize and encourage the value of their own contributions? Over the years, I have learned again and again the importance of listening carefully to my students if for no other reason than that I have realized that the problems my students present me with usually carry the answers within those very problems. I have had plenty of occasions where the answer to a problem was staring me in the face, and yet I couldn't see the answer because I wasn't really looking, wasn't really listening. Ben Franklin's famous comment that brought the ferocious debates about the Constitution to a close in 1787 has, I think, some relevance for us as teachers. Let us doubt a little of our own infallibility. What listening really entails in the classroom is the willingness to open ourselves to possibilities that will be the product not of our own understanding, but a result of the collective interaction of the entire classroom, a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. The disengaged student cannot be forced to listen to what we have to say, but our willingness to listen carefully to them carries with it a powerful moral obligation. When we hear them, they are inspired to hear us. And I believe this powerful reciprocity has the potential to solve much of the problem of student disengagement in the classroom. Their technological distractions fade when confronted with a more powerful, deeply human need, the need to be heard. The best teachers listen to their students, and their classrooms profit from the mutual commitment that results. But our educational system all too often takes this reciprocity for granted. And it is easy to lose sight of its importance when we are pressured by the curricular and administrative demands of contemporary education. I know that I need to remind myself of why it is important to listen each time I walk into the classroom. To remind myself in the face of my own distractions that the time I take to listen is never wasted. That's all for today's podcast. I'm your host, Baron Desterbrook, and I hope that you will find the ideas discussed in this podcast to be both useful and provocative. 
We are organizing an EduMeasure website where you will be able to comment on these episodes and identify resources for further investigation. The EduMeasure podcast is produced by Baron Esterbrook and Edward Leonard, with help from our editing and engineering intern, Miranda Araujo. Thanks for listening.